Welcome to Season 3, Episode 6 of The Fix, giving you education, solutions, and troubleshooting for the baseball pitcher, featuring Pitching Motion Troubleshooter Angel Borelli. I am your host, Joe Janish of FixingPitchers.com. Angel has a master's degree in exercise science, and to earn that kind of degree, one must demonstrate in-depth knowledge of exercise physiology, anatomy, structural kinesiology, biomechanics, sports medicine, sports psychology, and motor control, among other things. And just to make clear, Angel does not claim to be a pitching coach. She is a pitching motion troubleshooter, and she's been working with pitchers specifically for the past 20 years. And today we are recording our episode in early June of 2016. So some of the things we are talking about are going to be current to that time period, but I can assure you if you're listening at some point in the future or even a couple years later, all of the things that we talk about today are timeless. So you'll be able to learn something and take it to the mound. So let's get started. So Angel, for once, we have good news as opposed to bad news. I feel like every time we do an episode, I'm always starting with bad news with somebody coming down with a, an injury of some sort or having to have Tommy John surgery or something else. Finally, we have an episode where I can start with good news. And the good news is there are a number of pitchers coming back from Tommy John surgery. Uh, actually, one has already come back and, and pitched in a few major league games. That's you Darvish of the Texas Rangers. He is, he pitched really well in his, his return so far from Tommy John. He had his surgery in March of 2015 um, and we have a couple other pitchers who are looking to come back probably after the All-Star break is from what I'm understanding. Uh, Homer Bailey from the Cincinnati Reds, who had surgery back in May of 2015. He's supposed to be coming back. Uh, Zach Wheeler from the Mets had surgery in April 2015. He's supposed to be coming back uh, mid-July. Uh, Brandon McCarthy from the Dodgers, he had surgery April April 30th, I believe, in 2015. He's supposed to be back. Uh, and Adam Ottavino of the Colorado Rockies. He's an interesting guy because he actually did a, a video documentary of himself doing the first during the first 16 weeks after surgery because he was told he wouldn't be able to pick up a ball for 16 weeks. And so he decided that he was going to be really bored. So he decided he would Right. So he, he decided he'd document what he was doing while he was bored out of his mind. And that's up on um, on a website. I'll, I'll put it in the uh, in the show notes later. But uh, it's it's pretty interesting what, what he did. And, you know, what I found interesting is that other than Darvish, who came back uh, just a couple weeks ago, uh, all of these pitchers are coming are slated to come back after the All-Star break. So sometime mid-July, late July. And yet they all had surgery kind of in different times. You know, again, Homer Bailey in May of last year, Zach Wheeler early April of last year, uh, Adam Adovino in May, uh, Brandon McCarthy in April. Uh, I mean, it's around, they're around the same time, but there were a couple of things that um, I found interesting in the, di in the different pitchers. And I know everyone's different and everyone has different schedules. And I know sometimes they have setbacks. But I thought with, with so many pitchers coming back, maybe today in this episode, you could kind of walk us through what pitchers do when they come back from Tommy John surgery. Like what, what kind of protocol there is, you know, what, what kind of steps do they need to take and 
you know, why sometimes it takes 12 months or 14 months or 18 months or longer than that or shorter than that. Uh, Cause I know you've worked with a few pitchers, pitchers coming back from Tommy John. So maybe you could give us an idea. Well, first of all, what you'll notice is most all those guys had their um, surgery in the spring. And for anybody who gets injured, if you think you have to have surgery, it's a great time to do it because then you can play the next season. If you wait till the summer or fall, you can miss it. it just the timing is different. I just returned a pitcher to play that also had his Tommy John in April. So first of all, um, there is general protocol and that's determined, of course, by the doctor, you know, like, you know, the one pitcher 16 weeks where he couldn't throw that's kind of that's kind of makes sense some doctors it's different it really depends on what the what they're feeling and what the the pitcher is reporting and how the initial physical therapy is going but basically everybody's going to follow a similar protocol because the tissue a lot of healing that goes on in the body is a calendar issue where it takes x amount of time for certain things to heal and of course they are you know looking at the inside of the arm seeing if things look good and also the self-reporting and also what happens is they start you know even if you're using a general plan the very first time the pitcher throws you're gonna know if it's too soon for him to be starting in other words if somebody does need a little more time to heal it doesn't usually show up in the middle of the program it'll show up when they start and then you'll just say hey you know we're gonna give you two more weeks before we start so that's the first thing and so if you notice Joe they all were having it in April or May and now here they are they're gonna see their next season so do you see how that kind of makes sense with the timing and that's a big deal so if somebody's got an injury and they're running around you know to all the doctors to try to get an idea but you let's say you're a high school guy and you've got a college scholarship to deliver on and you want to get playing it's very important to consider the time of the year you do it. Now, you don't hold off on having it done if you injure yourself in the fall. But if you're like February or March and you're having problems, get the surgery done because then the next season you're going to be ready to play. So that's the first thing is, uh, you know, the timing and then also uh, getting started with the playing catch, which is when you really figure out what's going on. They're always going to have physical therapy. And then with my guys, when they're returned to play, uh, or return to play catch, which is when doctors refer their people to me. Fortunately, my guys don't have UCL surgery under my watch. I haven't had that happen yet. But um, if I get someone referred to me from a doctor, the first thing I do is I get them in the gym and put them through certain strength exercises that are going to mimic in a general way the joint actions uh, of the um pitching motion. If they can't get through a certain exercise, uh, like a push down or certain movements for the elbow, some forearm work, some wrist work, if they can't get through it without it really affecting them in a negative way, they're not ready to throw. And then what I do is have them stay in the gym for two or three weeks until they get a better response from those exercises and then they're ready to throw. So I always do a strength training sort of um, thing to test out because what I try to avoid are false starts. And then they go through um, you know, a, a throwing program that's flat ground and to me you want to get them to 60 feet as soon as possible and you want to get them downhill as soon as possible. They're actually finding out now that 
you know, getting pitchers downhill, even if it's not full-out pitching, but it's playing catch with that downhill trajectory, it starts to expose the shoulder, the arm, and everything to more normal mechanics, and um, it's a great way to condition the arm because the pitcher has to be conditioned for his, his for the pitching, and and you have to lay out a calendar at the beginning of all this to see you lay out a normal calendar with distance and volume being alternated through X number of steps. But if that pitcher doesn't can't succeed at one step, he has to drop back. So that calendar has to constantly be revised and it needs to contain 45 foot throwing, 60 feet throwing. And then, you know, the major leagues, they take their guys out into long toss probably. I don't do that with my guys. I have a different way I do it. I eat up calendar time with more downhill work that's playing catch because I don't work with uh, long distance throwing only because I'm an expert at pitching mechanics and the mechanics are too different. So I'm, I feel better working with what I know. And so, and also it's what the guys need to return to play with. So that's kind of the idea. And then also making sure that once they do start pitching, that they're actually increasing their intensity by your changing the environment, which means that they're throwing a bullpen versus the next step would be somebody standing in. And the next step would be them throwing BP at a practice. And you do all of this before you even consider having him go to a pitch against competitively, like in a minor league game for a professional or in a competitive game for a high school or college player. So does that all kind of make sense and agree with what you have been reading about these guys? Well, yeah, I just have a few questions, though. Now, I mean, let's assume that a pitcher has has been following the schedule and is doing really well, hasn't had any major setbacks. Is it realistic to think that he could come back within 12 months after the surgery? Well, here's the deal. There should be no arbitrary decisions. For example, there's a doctor here that I rave about all the, all the time, Dr. Arthur Ting, who does an amazing job on surgery, and he has a very unique way that he um, casts the arm after the surgery. When I've worked with uh, some of his people, they come back so soon that it's unbelievable and they don't go through the usual tightness etc so a lot of it has to do with the style with which the surgery is done and also what did they actually have to do full tear partial tear did they have to rebuild this did they have to move the nerve did they have to you know do this do that it really depends and also the health of the pitcher so so really and truly we I don't think anybody knows the answer to that but here's what you do know what's black and white is is the pitcher successfully moving through steps? You have to have a plan that progresses. And the plan has to be so systematic that you don't sit there and make arbitrary decisions. You go, here's the plan. And hey, if he can do this, well, then he can do the next step. And if he can do that, then he's ready for the next step. It's when you start skipping steps or... You don't create a plan or have enough knowledge to put all the pieces into the plan. For example, uh, people I know that have just gone from long toss into pitching and the next thing they're in a game because they were rushing through something. They never even worked with the increased intensity with someone standing in. They never worked with the increased intensity of just facing hitters who were in a non-competitive situation. 
and it's too much too soon. When you do things like that, then you have problems. And then you could say, wow, we returned him too soon. And then the next guy that comes up, you're going to be nervous and say, geez, are we going to return him too soon? No, there should never be that issue because the plan should have built into it that you don't progress unless you succeed. But the plan has to be solid. And what you need to do that is you need a number of people putting together the plan. The doctor and the physical therapist only have so much knowledge about what goes on in the trenches. The pitching coach understands the difference in intensity. People who analyze mechanics, and by the way, I didn't mention this, but you know, the the I, I have two ways I look at this program. The program to return a pitcher to play is to recover from his injury. But the other thing is to discover what the cause was. And so in it built into my plan with the, everything I said, right next to that is, I'm right there the first time they throw a ball to check their mechanics at each distance when there's a distance change. Because they're going to change their mechanics because there are different mechanics uh, between distances and also between flat ground and, and pitching. And there may be differences between from the stretch and the windup. So there's a lot of things you have to explore within the whole framework of like, okay, here's this bullpen session. What are we going to be looking for? So you have to go back and discover all the things that are possible for why that pitcher got injured. Because the third thing that's happening during that program is you're rebuilding the pitcher's psyche. Because when he got hurt, it hurt really bad. And they have to trust that it's not going to hurt again. So you're doing a systematic plan. They're on top of what's going on. And you're ruling out that the mechanics were not the culprit or that they were the culprit. My philosophy is because of the work I do, it's always physical. The reason why I have that philosophy is I'm a person that brings hope to my pitchers. When you think that it's something physical and tangible that you can change, then you have hope. If I say, gee, I have no idea why you got this injury, then the pitcher is in a mystery situation, and that's not really conducive to him getting back psychologically. So my role in my work, and it's what I do, is I instill hope, which is to say, we know it's mechanics, let's rule that out or let's fix it. So from day one, that's what's happening. So when that year comes, Joe, it's not really a, is he ready or isn't he? It's, it, it's, it should be he's ready or he hasn't progressed through the steps. When he's progressed, he's ready to progress him and then to say, let's hold him back. That's ridiculous. That means that you're making arbitrary decisions and or intuitively you feel that you didn't cover all the bases. Now, does that make sense to you? Uh, yeah, it makes sense, but it, it's not congruent with some of the things that I've been reading recently, especially with uh, Zach Wheeler from the Mets and Homer Bailey on the Reds. Um, with Wheeler, he was supposed to come back. They had targeted uh, for him to be back pitching competitively at the end of this month, June 2016. He had a, a minor setback, which was um, he had some stitches that didn't properly dissolve that had to be removed back in, I think, March or April. So that set him back a little bit, but they they still had him coming back in early July. But now they're talking about a mid-July or late July 
because they were worried about um, having him return in early July and then rest because of the July All-Star break, which I thought was kind of strange. I would think that he would just stay on his own independent um, throwing program, not, not, you know, not worrying about whether or not there's a break for everybody else. Um, and then I read something really interesting about the Homer Bailey case. Uh, he's, he's actually taken a step back in rehab because he had some issues. He had some pain recently, uh, and he's gone 10 days without throwing. And they asked him, um, you know, if he was concerned about the, the setback. And he said, no, he said, uh, this is a quote, we're a little over a year out and that's pretty quick to come back. We're going to take our time and to do this thing right. It's kind of the same thing I've said all along. You don't want to do it again. Obviously, one of the things that was brought to my attention was, was that there's a lot of research about guys who come back at the 12-month mark. They have a higher probability of Tommy John surgery happening again as opposed to maybe 14 months and then the numbers are better. So I thought that was a little unusual that you know, you were talking about just making arbitrary numbers. This sounds like an arbitrary decision on the part of some teams if they just decide, all right, we're gonna we're gonna make our pitchers go 14 months just because research says that um, the the results are better and, and pitchers don't have um, you know re-injure themselves within the 12 month period. So that's why I'm I'm a little confused about about you know what's what's going on in major league and, and the you know following the proper protocol. Yes, well, there is research that there that is showing, and they they're always looking at the statistics to see are we returning the guys too soon, but and and given the environment and the way that, for example, major leagues, the major league does things, probably that's a valid thing, but in in my world, in my world, it's because I include mechanics changes. You see, the major leagues, we already know that when a guy gets hurt, he comes back and he pretty much looks the same way as he did when he left. And I can tell you for certain that I can see issues that contributed to the injury still happening. So you're looking at a population of people who are measuring things that do not cover all the bases. So, of course, their results are going to be, I mean, I don't know how to even address their results. Yes, maybe their guys need to wait longer because they're still throwing not the right way. But if you're changing the mechanics and you've addressed it and you have found the cause, you have some theory on how this happened, and the pitcher is reporting that his motion feels better, he's not hurting, and he loves his mechanics, and, you know, in this process, the pitcher is usually saying, yeah, you know what, I was doing that, and, yeah, this is way better on my arm. And so you, you're not just sitting on the sideline saying, oh, do this, make this change, and the pitcher's there um, resisting you. You're working with the pitcher, and you're saying, hey, this, let me show you your film. This right here increases the stress around the elbow. So what we're going to do is we're going to make this adjustment and let me teach you some things. And that's how you proceed. And the pitcher the whole time is saying, yeah, oh, this is great. Okay, cool. And so then you're moving along. So in that instance, again, when all those ducks are in a row, we Andy's following a program and he feels great and his mechanics look stellar. In other words, you're not returning a pitcher to play who still is using 
uh, mechanics that put them at risk, which is what my job is. They don't return to play until all the ducks are in a row. They satisfy distance, volume, pitch types, terrain, and mechanics. I don't say, okay, you can go back, but by the way, you're going to blow out your elbow again because you're still doing blah, blah, blah. No, I'm like, as we're working through the program, he's not actually even progressing until he gets that mechanics changed down. In other words, if somebody has a risk factor that creates tightness in their forearm, and let's say I'm working with that, and he's still getting tightness in his forearm, and we're still working with that change, I would never progress him to the phase where, okay, now he's on the mound and he's throwing 50 pitches. No, he is still at the level that we're still working on it with because the next level is going to produce more intensity. So if he doesn't have that correction, now fortunately I'm able to make those corrections fairly soon. In fact, a good teacher, a good coach knows how to say, hey, this is what you're doing, this is what we want you to do, and you get the pitcher to do it. So that's the difference. So when we look at what the major leagues are saying, they're doing it in an environment where they're resistant to change pitchers' mechanics because they're a big business who bought a guy who looks a certain way and they're praying that he goes back to looking that same way because they got a lot out of him. They're not going, let's take this guy and transform him into something else and hope that he's just as good. They don't have that information yet to know that that's actually a possibility. It's very, done in a very limited way, probably, but it's not done enough to where you're going to see statistics that make it sound like, okay, now, now we're returning guys when they're ready and we've covered all the bases. Do you see what I'm saying? So you have to consider the source of the information that you're getting. And that's the major leagues are not a business that are concerned with the way a pitcher does something, only to a certain extent. They're concerned with what he does, not how he does it. And that's how they buy him, and that's how they work with him. And that's just, that is just the scenario that's actually what goes on. And, you know, we've discussed this on many levels. And until that changes, you're going to see guys who aren't ready at a year, maybe they need 16 months. And, you know, for those cases, that would be the best way to go. Well, that actually leads leads us right into our um, teaching moment segment. And for once, we're going to be teaching the listeners. I mean, we're always teaching listeners, but in this particular segment, I want to teach the listeners a little bit about you because you bring up some very good points here. Um, pitchers who are coming back from Tommy John surgery or shoulder surgery or whatever the surgery is, they generally are assigned to a, um, a rehab coach who is almost always a former minor league or major league pitcher or former minor league or major league catcher who just has in his background baseball, uh, doesn't have strength and conditioning in his background, doesn't have um, you know, exercise physiology, doesn't have anatomy, doesn't have kinesiology, doesn't have any of these things in his background. And that's the guy who's going to be monitoring the pitcher going through his rehabilitation. And I, you know, it, it makes me uh, very frustrated to know that that's how pitchers come back from injuries, because it, I feel really bad for the, the coach that's put into that situation, because he's really not armed with the right information and the right background to help that pitcher uh, become better and more efficient and 
probably avoid re-injury. He, he, he's basically tasked with bringing the pitcher back to the same results and performance that the pitcher had before. And it's like you said, there, there's a separation. The major league teams look at uh, performance and results. They don't really look at the process, as you said, the way they do it. And I think it's important for everyone to kind of understand that there's that missing piece that you can provide and people like you can provide. So I think what's important is maybe you could start off by just giving us a little bit of an idea of your background. I mean, we talk about it every time we start an episode, but maybe you could give us a little bit more uh, in-depth detail on, first of all, your background, uh, your education, and your experience that allows you to be a pitching motion troubleshooter. Well, um, I think there's two things that, that, and I know people do write in all the time and they're always asking questions. They ask it of me, like, you know, what, how are you different than a pitching coach? My son's working with a pitching coach. Can he work with you at the same time? Are you, uh, are you going to do the same thing or why should, you know, he's been trained by some of the best coaches. So if we come to you, how is that going to be different now? Normally somebody, anybody who calls me is being referred to me unless they've, uh, you know, they, they do, of course, find find me online and through the podcast and other ways. But normally they are some, the majority who live out here, they are, they've already heard my name because I'm, you know, in California, people know me. Sure. But there are these questions. And what's interesting to me is the difficulty I have in answering it. But it's kind of simple in the sense that even as a child, I, I was born a teacher. And so teaching skills is, is an important thing when you're trying to take somebody's movement and change it. I was also born with the gift of visual acuity. I am able to see motion <clears throat> that is uh, hard for other people to see. Even in graduate school, my professor said, we've never met anybody who could do what you can do. They said, tell us what you see. I can see movement whether it's something I understand or not. For example, before I worked with pitchers, I worked with scratch golfers to teach them how to hit driver. I have never picked up a golf club in my life, but I thought it was funny that all the golf instructors were talking about the swing plane of the club. And I said, well, why are they talking about the club? If the hips move right, and if the trunk moves right, and if the shoulders are in the right place, and their wrists don't do something funny at the end, the club will go where your body goes. And when I said that sentence to golfers, they're like, oh my God, because who can bite their teeth into the swing plane? Nobody, but you can bite your teeth into, are your feet in the right position? Are your hips in the right position? So I had a gift for seeing things and breaking it down and making it simple. So troubleshooting for me is looking at each joint and seeing if it's doing everything correctly and finding the one joint that isn't. So that in a major league player, I would never take a pitcher and have him, he's not going to end up being a different guy. In fact, my job is to unleash the potential that's in him that he hasn't even tapped into. The guys that come to me that throw 92 and they've got some huge flaw. They get so excited when I show them on film and I'll do a still shot and say, see this here? You're not using your shoulder correctly. So you're throwing 92 without full rotation of your shoulder and they go nuts. 
And the way of teaching that and making that change is what I do. You see, in this day and age, the word analysis has been thrown around so much. Biomechanics is thrown around so much because, well, first of all, it's a man's world in baseball and math is a man's thing. Biomechanics is kind of like, you know, the, the hammer and nails of the industry. Uh, kinesiology, not so much. Okay, studying muscles. Nobody in my graduate class wanted to study muscles. It's boring to them. It's not to me. So in order to troubleshoot, you have to return to the scene of the crime, know where he's having pain, be able to identify if the joints involved in the pain are doing everything right, and then you have to know what happened before that joint had to move in the joints that preceded it in the motion. And that's how you figure out what's going on. My shoulder hurts. Oh, what did he do with his hips that caused his shoulder to hurt? My hips hurt. What did he do with his knee that caused his hips to hurt? I mean, it's sort of like backing it off down the line. And so troubleshooting is really about doing that. And when you do it that way, you don't have to change who the pitcher is. You enhance who the pitcher is. And the pitcher, by the way, has not got a gun to his head where you're saying, do this or I will shoot you. You're like, look at this, this, and here's a drill, and you come up with something, and that's my teaching skill. And I come up with a very modified way to have him feel it, and it's never within the pitching motion. And we don't even, we keep the pitching motion sacred. We don't even touch the motion until the isolated movements have become a little more familiar. And then we go and integrate it. I have the greatest respect for a pitcher and his motion. I keep it sacred until it's time to interface some change with it. And that change is taught through feel and through movements and other things. So in order for me to do that, I have to know anatomy. I have to know joint movements and all the things that you talk about that I study. And I have to have a very big knowledge about the psyche of the person I'm working with. And I have to be able to be present with who he is so that I can find the way that's going to help him. It's not a cookie cutter thing. Pictures are very different. And I have that ability to be very present and to be a good teacher. And then on top of that, I have creativity. That's what makes me different than the poor pitching coach who has to... You know, I'm not saying he doesn't have the creativity, the desire, all this stuff, but to not have the background. I mean, he couldn't be what he's doing if he was in school learning what I was learning. I mean, I barely have time to watch a baseball game. In graduate school, I couldn't even watch baseball because I was busy studying it. And um, so, so while we're different, we're all important. And the combination is critical and there's got to be a day you know fortunate hopefully soon where pitching coaches start to see that somebody can help them not hinder them in terms of getting the pitcher to make some changes that are going to enhance his profession and the owners of the team need to start seeing that too even on a business level to protect their investment okay now you mentioned biomechanics briefly and i know a lot of teams are are using biomechanics and, and sending their pictures for analysis and that sort of thing. And what, you know, a lot of times when a, somebody who doesn't know a whole lot about science talks about science in baseball, they, they point to biomechanics as evidence that 
major league teams are are going through of science and and trying to use science to help their pitchers. So maybe you could give us an idea of what the difference between what a biomechanist like Dr. Glenn Fleissig does and what you do. Well, the ASMI, which is the uh, is where they do the biomechanical analysis and the research that I, of course, follow. I found Glenn when I was in graduate school, and he's been my mentor ever since. I couldn't do my work if I didn't have knowledge of all of their work. So what they do is a piece of, has to be a piece of the uh, formula for the work that I do because they are the ones that you know they produce the data they produce the research through the things that they do and they're about measuring biomechanics is about things that you can measure so they're not about the things that for example I might say gee you know this guy just doesn't you know he just doesn't move smoothly you're not going to see that on a biomechanics report because you can't define move smoothly. You're going to get numbers as to how long his stride is, what angle his elbow is at at certain places of the motion. You're going to get black and white numerical data on some checkpoints of the body while it's in motion. And those da the data for each picture is compared to what the norm is. And then that pitcher has an idea of where he stands within the norm. And then you can make correlations between, for example, if you're, they measure angles, but they also are able to measure the velocity of a joint. So if a pitcher is complaining that he's not throwing hard, and when they measure the velocity of the shoulder joint doing the action of internal rotation, which is what produces the velocity from the shoulder, then if you're below if you're below norm they're going to say hey you're below norm this is why you're complaining about not having velocity now they're not going to tell you how to increase your velocity they'll say hey go work on your shoulder internal rotation but what i do is look at why doesn't he have good internal rotation and not from a physical therapist point of view i'm not going to take his arm and measure but i'm going to look at it from the motion point of view a physical therapist could do the me measuring. See, it takes a team. The biomechanist can measure things. That pitcher can go to a physical therapist and say, hey, tell me if I've got some restriction in my shoulder. You know, it's not going fast. Or he might come to me and or he might come to me and say, okay, here's my numbers. Physical therapy says my shoulder's fine. What am I doing? Well, I might look and say, oh, you've got excessive flexion at this point, and it's tightening up the shoulder. Your elbow's too flexed. We've got to get you to do this. But, oh, you're doing that because you're doing this. And that's how we put that together. Now, that is how I'm different. I'm on the field filming. It goes into the computer immediately, and I'm looking, and I'm seeing, and, and I already know what I'm looking for because before I even look at him, he's telling me his shoulder the, the biomechanics reports telling me he has decreased internal rotation of his shoulder. The doctor in physical therapy have said he's fine physically. So I already know in my head, because I've done this for so long, what I need to look for. I'm going to, of course, look to see how the shoulder looks, but I also know what causes the shoulder not to rotate fast. And this isn't something that the pitcher has wrong with him. It's something he's doing that is stopping his shoulder from rotating as fast as it can. 
So my job is to go in and find that. So the pieces are all important. So Glenn's work is vital. If I didn't understand what the degrees of rotation should be or the angles between certain uh, parts of the body at the motion, I wouldn't have a place to start to make my analysis. When he look, measures things, he stops the pitching motion in certain places. I stop my film in the exact same places. Because I know what the degrees are that are normal, I can look and say, I can't say, oh, he's at X degrees, but I can say his angle's off or it's on. And for the purposes of the work I do, I'm going to be making that connection to other parts of the body in terms of the quality of the way he moves and the efficiency of that movement. So I have tons of things that I have to add into my work. And But more than that, it's understanding the way movement's created. So no matter what the number is, if a pitcher has a problem at a certain joint, my job is to understand and to know what joint prior to that action was involved that could have contributed to the next joint not doing its job. And that has to do with connecting dots that comes from years of experience and education. And it's actually things that we are all exposed to every day when we have a great meal that was cooked by a great chef or when we go see a therapist that's fantastic, or we go to a doctor that's able to read between the lines on what might be wrong. Experts in their field bring a lot to the table, and that is sometimes things that are uh, can be undefined. But that's the difference, and that's the way biomechanics works with, that's quantitative analysis. It's the way it works with qualitative analysis. But, you know, for me, biomechanics, that's their product. Their product is the analysis. My product is the solution and the change, but I have to use the biomechanics to get there so that I know what needs to be changed. Well, it sounds like a pretty complex process of trying to troubleshoot pitching mechanics and, and get a pitcher to throw uh, properly. I mean, like you said, it's, it's, it's an entire team. I, I would, if I could dumb it down, I would say a comparison would be I guess like a, a, a biomechanical analysis would be similar to taking your car in for a 50 point inspection. And in, instead of the car getting fixed, the mechanic just hands you all the results of the 50 point inspection. And you have like all of these issues with your car. And then what do you do with it? You, you're going to hand it to your neighbor who's an accountant, or do you try to fix it yourself? Or do you hand the report back to the mechanic or to the specialist who knows how to fix things like for you. I mean, it sounds like, you know, there's still a piece missing when, when you get that biomechanical report, you still need someone who has the knowledge and expertise to actually apply that information in order to get the pitcher back to where he should be or to a, a, a higher level from where he is already. Yes. And, and also, even when you do have that, you know, and I'm, I'm pretty sure ASMI co uh, coordinates with certain people on certain teams, like, okay, here's what we found. And then that person says, oh, okay. Well, what that person is bringing to the table is going to tell you how he's going to make that change. For example, there may be somebody who reads that the pitcher's uh, elbow angle isn't correct uh, when his stride foot lands. As, and uh, that's a very critical part of the motion. 
And uh, so uh, one person might just start saying, okay, here's your arm. I need your arm to be in this angle. Well, that's going to be part of it. But there may be a reason why it's not getting in that angle. And unless you know that reason, you're, he's never going to be able to get into that angle. So you have to eliminate that. And you have to be able to look at that. So you have to look at the difference in cause of problems and what the problem is. So depending on who's doing the work, and there are people in the industry, their job is they look at the problem and they try to solve that problem with by going right to the problem. I'm more of a let's determine the cause of that because I have a di different understanding of the way motion is created. So it really depends on who you're speaking to as to how you can get something done. And, you know, that's the beauty of the world. We have choices and we can go around. And for somebody who's not getting answers and they say, somebody said to me yesterday, I've been trying to fix my stride since I was in eighth grade. I mean, it's been doing this, that, and the other thing. And I said, um, well, it's not really your stride that's the issue. Uh, your, the stride's causing the problem, but the reason you're having that big stride is because of blah, blah, blah. And it had something to do with uh, absolutely, I mean, it was something that nobody would probably even think of looking at. And so for this picture, he had gotten to a place where he had to try something different. And he had to go to the source of why the problem was there because he couldn't solve the problem by dealing with the problem. You you know, as Einstein said, you know, you can't solve the problem with the same eyes that you create it with. So that's sort of the way that I work. So, um, yeah, and the cool thing is, is that there's tons of different approaches to solve things. And hopefully all the pitchers have the ability to make that choice. And that's what we're hoping for, that they understand and I do know that the problem is they don't even know someone like me is probably out there. But I help many, many pitchers, and I, I think that, uh, you know, uh, that, that we're moving in that direction in the industry. Yeah, I think we're going to see a day soon enough that you'll be, you know, working alongside with a pitching coach and, and you know, being that final piece that, that can, or the missing link or whatever you want to call it, that will, you know, help pitchers stay healthy and, and pitching at their top level. Um, so I think, I think it's time for us to go into our location segment. Um, I've been, you know, thinking for two weeks, what are you going to come up with next? And so I'm, I'm very excited to hear what our, what our uh, location tip is going to be today. Well, it's so funny because remember, I'm in, on the field, uh, you know, four days a week. I'm on the field doing bullpens with guys all day long. It's my favorite work to do, being in the trenches. And uh, so I'm solving this problem. So there's never a lack of uh, input of information because um, the, the pitchers that come to me are great pitchers. And of course, we a lot of them have location issues. So, uh, yes. Yeah, so, um, so we've talked about location we started with the eyes and then I went into the wrist and I was sort of reverse engineering from sort of the simplest thing and then starting with where the ball actually comes out of the hand because obviously the ball is the thing that's not locating and I've been moving backwards where I went through the wrist and I went through some things with the shoulder and I you know landed of course at the feet the front foot the rear foot and you'll notice that in talking about the segments and if people have been listening all along, you'll notice that as we move down the line, also you can go back up the line 
to, to create the list of problems that cause the problem. So that's sort of a sequence. So if there's a problem with the wrist, you need to look at the shoulder. And if you look at the shoulder, you're going to need to look at the foot. And if you look at this, so you can go in either direction because normally if you're having one problem, you're probably having another problem as well. So I want to turn to now the next thing that I want coaches to be able to look at. So if co every week I'm hoping that coaches, while you're watching your pictures, you're taking whatever I talked about that week and looking at that specifically so that you can cue your eyes into looking at the body specifically for certain things. And what you'll probably find is that that thing that's happening, some of the topics we've talked about prior are also happening because I'm not only giving you the sequence, I'm also giving you the cascade of events that actually does occur. So what I want all the coaches to do now is I want everyone to go stand behind their, their catcher as they're watching the pitcher. And if you're doing video, you're going to want to stop and look at the way the pitcher uh, is looking from behind the catcher. And the one of the most common uh, faults for a location problem is when a pitcher doesn't rotate fully to square up to the plate before he uh, throws at his target. So the way the pitching motion occurs is that he is standing sideways on one leg and then he strides out and then he and let's talk about a right-handed pitcher and then he rotates his um, his lower body towards the plate and the hips arrive first and then the lower trunk arrives and then the upper trunk arrives and the upper trunk is actually bringing the arm into the preparation position for acceleration and at that point if you stop the film you're going to see uh, the max external rotation position. This would be where when you're looking from behind the catcher, everything's facing the hitter. Everything's facing his target. His feet have turned over. His kneecaps are facing forward. If he had jeans on, both pockets would be facing forward. You can see the name on his chest. And what you're seeing is his arm is in max external rotation. And that is where the shoulder is fully stretched. And it's where for most people they see the forearm and, and uh, the way I hear guys uh, discuss it who are not scientists, they'll say it's the forearms laying back. Yes, the shoulder's in full external rotation. And it's when you see the forearm being the most, on good pitchers, you'll see it be almost parallel to the ground. So they have not accelerated the ball yet. So in this position, this is uh, the max external rotation position, you want the body fully square because the next movement is going to be that the pitcher's going forward to accelerate the ball. And he's going forward over his left leg if he's a right-handed pitcher and he's reaching his hand out. Well, what you see frequently is you see that the right hip of a right-handed pitcher will not be completely square to the target. You'll see his chest has made it, his left leg faces forward, his chest has made it, his arm looks like it's in the right place, but you'll see his right hip facing off to the side on a diagonal. He didn't quite fully rotate. And when you have this problem, you are there's a there's a reason for it, which I'll get to in a second. But if you see a pitcher, and you and this is again, I'm giving you a simple tip because I want you guys to go out there and start troubleshooting your pitchers. If you're standing behind the catcher, and you do not see if he had jeans on, you do not see both pockets.
and you see a right-handed pitcher, it's tilted. It's like it hasn't come all the way around. Let me position myself on a field. Okay, the right-handed, the pocket on the right side of a right-handed pitcher would be facing the third baseline or a diagonal between the third baseline and the plate. So he hasn't completely rotated the lower half. If you see that, and he has location problems, if he's doing that, that means his arm arrived before his hips. He's probably also having velocity problems, by the way. But his arm, his arm arrived before the hips, which means he's reaching into his release point because he isn't fully positioned correctly to reach forward. And you may even see the fingers going to the side of the ball. You may see funny spin, but you're going to see a, have a pitcher who's missing. Okay, so that's what you're going to look for. And if that's the problem, then you know you've got, you're on to something. Now, why would a pitcher not fully rotate his hips? And I want everyone to think of this answer because, as I said at the beginning, if we drop back to the thing I talked about last week and then the thing before, you'll see that they all fit together. If a pitcher's stride isn't correct, if his stride landing, if a right-handed pitcher takes his left foot and strides and lands too far to his right, so his he's on a tightrope, his rear hip is not going to be able to turn fully towards the plate, and he gets stuck, and so the rotation of the hips stop, and the rotation of the upper trunk continues, and so he's reaching out and delivering without his lower body behind him. This is why many pitchers lift up that leg, because they have to square their hips, but when they're lifting the leg, they're supposed to be rotating, so again, you'll see the arm uh, ahead of the hip. So when you notice that the arm gets ahead of the hip rotation, and the hip is not facing square as the arm arrives square, then you know you need to look at probably the stride, and that's usually the number one reason for that. And of course, go back to the other podcast to see, well, why would the stride be off, or why would that happen? So if you notice, everything does connect, but you want to be able to at least identify what you're seeing so you know where to start when you're looking at the motion to determine what, why is this pitcher all of a sudden missing his spots. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a good tip. <laughs> I, I never would have thought to um, look at a pitcher's, pitcher's um, back pockets for, for an idea of whether or not he's he got his command down. I would, I would be looking in all kinds of different places. Yeah, his front pocket. So if he's got a pair, if he's in jeans. His front pockets, yes, yeah, sorry. So actually, you could see it if you were standing behind the rubber, but if you're standing behind the catcher, and he had jeans on, you should see both pockets. You will be shocked to everybody out there how many guys don't fully rotate their hip. Uh, another reason why they don't fully rotate is they don't properly use their back foot against the ground. Let's talk about the guy who's not crossing over. He's got a perfect stride landing, but what you see is he takes his right foot, and that right foot presses into the ground, and one of its functions is to turn that right side of the pelvis around. Maybe he's not using it completely. So you see the back foot in a weird position. You need to teach him how to use the back foot to turn that hip. So it's not always that the stride landing is incorrect, but the hip has to get around one way or another, and it's either got to be in the right position to do it or it needs the back foot to do it. And other than that, there's no other thing that could be happening. So 
you want to very carefully watch the pitcher and the way he uses his lower body. But if he's not square to the plate and he's reaching out into his ball release, you're not going to have a pitcher who can repeat his performance. And that usually is when a pitcher has location problems. Okay, so if we have a pitcher this week with uh, issues with his command, I, I encourage you to have him put on his blue jeans and go through his bullpen session and watch those, <laughs> watch those pockets. Now, come on, guys. I know you can imagine <laughs> a pair of blue jeans. Hey, by the way, I want everyone to know that I love your emails that I get. I get emails all the time that say, I was listening to your podcast and I was having trouble with my son or blah, blah, blah. And then they tell me that they actually saw the thing I was talking about. And, you know, in, in my world, if one pitcher gets saved, I'm happy. So thank you for always letting me know and always feel free to keep me posted to, to know that something is of value that has helped one of your pitchers. So... Yeah, and that, that's why we call this The Fix, because we're here to fix pitchers. So uh, that's that's our episode number six. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Angel Borelli. For more about Angel, you can visit her website at gymscience.com, G-Y-M-S-C-I-E-N-C-E.com. You can get plenty of information on getting pitchers to the next level, and you can also find Angel's book on strengthening the elbow. Again, that's gymscience.com. You can also visit my website, fixingpitchers.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on either iTunes or Stitcher or whatever you use to listen to your podcasts. Uh, pretty easy to find. Just put in baseball pitching to fix. Uh, leave a review. Rate us. Give us five stars. Tell your friends. Pass it on to pitchers that you know. We hope you tune in again. And in the meantime, we wish you safe and effective performance on the pitching mat.